0: Well, welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm delighted at this point to introduce Dr. Raj Gandhi, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of HIV clinical services and education at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's the site leader at the MGH AIDS clinical trial site, the Harvard Boston Medical Center and he's also director of the Harvard University CIFAR Clinical Corps. He will be speaking to us about investigational antiretroviral agents transforming the care of people with HIV. Over to you.
1: Thanks, Dr. Abrams. Um, There was a lot of exciting new developments in this area of investigational ART, and I'm gonna reflect on how it may transform the care of our patients over the next years. Here are my disclosures. And here are learning objectives for today. So I'd like to reflect on what I think the future of ART is going to be. And now it's impossible to see the future as a Sage once said, but we're gonna try over the next 25 minutes to see how far we can get. So what we're gonna do is start off by talking about why we need new ART. We'll talk about the new drugs and we'll weave in the new updates from Croy this year. And then we'll reflect on how we might use those new drugs. So why do we need new ART? We have more than 30 drugs for treating people with HIV. There's high rates of viral suppression and low rates of toxicity. But I think our current regimens, regimens continue to have limitations. We've learned about weight gain, and that was certainly a prominent theme at CROI this year, as well as drug interactions. All of our regimens up until very recently uh, have involved daily oral dosing, which is a challenge for some of the most vulnerable people. There's limited safety uh, uh, information on the safety of many of our regimens during pregnancy. And then there are high costs, especially here in the United States. So I'm gonna give you three examples of patients of mine uh, in whom I think new ART really could uh, be beneficial. And the first is an example of a person who's doing well on current therapy. It's a 25 year old woman. She's virologically suppressed on a single pill combination, but she wants to take fewer pills. She's worried uh, about what the medicines will do to her over the long-term. And so that's an example, and we'll talk about what may be in store for her. A second example is a person struggling with daily oral ART, a 45-year-old man. He's had swallowing difficulties for a number of years. He has depression, and he has on again, off again, virologic suppression. And then finally, a person with multidrug-resistant HIV. An example here is a 55-year-old man with HIV since the 1990s. He's been on multiple regimens, and he now has virus that's resistant to all available classes. So I think the things that we want or really need differ depending on the particulars of the patient. So for the first person, uh, someone who's doing well on ART, certainly fewer drugs with less toxicity, drugs that have l- reduced dosing frequencies, a high barrier to resistance. In the setting of um, daily oral therapy, if there's a way to have less visibility, it might reduce stigma. And then, of course, safety during pregnancy and a lower cost with better access. For someone who is struggling with daily oral oral ART, I think many of these same considerations apply, but here I think the the, the focus should be on regimens which have which have reduced the dosing frequency and a high barrier to resistance, as well as regimens that give less visibility and may thereby reduce stigma. And we heard earlier today about uh, the uh, cabotegravir rilpivirine option, and we won't talk about that in this lecture because we've talked about it already, uh, but that's an example. And then last but not least, a person with multi-drug resistant HIV I think the main need, of course, is a regimen that has activity against drug-resistant virus, and we'll talk about that as well. So here are the major classes of antiretroviral medications, uh, ranging from entry inhibitors to RT inhibitors, to integrase inhibitors, to protease inhibitors, to capsid and maturation inhibitors. And at CROI this year, uh, a number of um, presentations really focused on advances in some of these new drugs, and I'm gonna uh, cover select um, advances uh, over the last year. And we'll focus on, on the uh, uh, on the drugs highlighted here in red. And what we'll do in particular is we'll start off with the drug As Azlatravir is a nucleoside RT translocation inhibitor. So it represents a, a new um, mechanism of action. It's potent at low doses. A single oral dose of Eslatavir, uh can suppress HIV RNA for, for more than a week. It has a high barrier to resistance. And, and this is important, it has a long intracellular half-life. And what it does is that gives you a potential for once daily dosing, of course, but also once weekly dosing or even less frequent dosing. We've heard a lot about this drug over the last few years. And so I'll present some of the more recent advances uh, on Latavir, and we will um, we'll, um, reflect on exactly where we are with this particular drug. So late last fall, um, the um, updated data on the Drive to Simplify study were presented. This is a phase 2b study in which people start on Azlactavir, Duraverine, and 3-TC. They start on three-drug therapy or they start on a TDF, 3-TC, and Duraverine. And then at week 24, if they're suppressed, they switch over to two-drug therapy with Azlactavir, Duraverine, or they continue uh, their three-drug therapy. And what you see in the um, graphic here is that at three different dosages of Azlactavir, high rates of virologic suppression, comparable uh, to uh, three-drug therapy, which is shown in gray. At the um, Glasgow meeting uh, this uh, past fall, uh, um, uh, Dr. Orkin described six participants who had protocol-defined virologic failure. All of them had a viral load less than 100, and there were no confirmed viral loads over 80. And three of the six continue to have low level viremia even after switching to another regimen, suggesting that these individuals were uh, controlling virus on their Azlatavir-Durabirine. Uh, now azlatavir now is transitioning from phase two trials of the sort that we've heard about in the past to phase three trials. And where phase three trials are, are going are switch studies, taking people who are suppressed on three drug therapy and seeing how they do on a two drug regimen of azlatavir people with multi-drug resistance. uh, Because of this novel mechanism, uh, there is uh, um, uh, uh, optimism that this might have uh, activity against um, a virus that's resistant to other classes. And then it's also being studied in treatment-naive participants. There are also um, uh, reasons that I think that this particular drug may have a role in pre-exposure prophylaxis. There's a phase 2 trial of PrEP with Azlatravir, where the drug is being given once a month. Again, um, really taking advantage of that long half-life. There are important phase three trials called the EMPOWER-22 and EMPOWER-024 uh, studies. And these are looking at oral Azlatravir given monthly versus uh, TDF-FTC, or in the case of um, uh, men who have sex with men or transgender women who have sex with men, um, TDF-FTC or TAP-FTC. So it's going to compare in a phase three trial current um, PrEP to once a month uh, oral Azlatravir. And then finally, there are promising PK results with Azlatravir implant. I'm gonna keep our focus largely on treatment, and so we won't talk more about uh, PrEP uh, during this talk. So we talked about Azlatravir, which has the potential to be given once a week um, based on its PK. What would it be paired with? And at this year's CROI, we heard new data on MK8507. This is an investigational NNRTI. What's interesting about this drug is it has high antiviral potency, including against virus that has that have mutations against uh, other NNRTIs. It has a resistance profile that's very comparable to durobrane. So it has activity against virus that has K103N, Y181C, or K, uh, G190A, similar to durobrane. Now, the PK of MK8507 supports once-weekly dosing because it has a long half-life. And at last um at late last year at the Glasgow meeting um some antiviral effects were presented a single oral dose of, of this particular drug uh, reduced viral loads in all of the participants uh, after a single dose by more than one log one patient developed a mutation but that was a person who had a, a delay in uh, starting onto three drug therapy so what's in the offing what's coming down the pike there is a phase 2b switch study in um, where the um, combination of Azlatravir with MK8507 will be given and dosed weekly. And we do know that some um, patients um, do prefer a less frequent dosing. And so this will be an interesting trial to keep your eye on over the next years. Now let's switch gears to capsid inhibitors. Um, capsid inhibitors, just as a reminder, the HIV capsid is a, a conical structure that, that wraps itself around the genome and around viral proteins, such as reverse transcriptase and integrase. The capsid core has a multiple capsid uh, protein subunits. And what happens is when a virus gets into a cell, that capsid core disassembles. And the virus life cycle requires that disassembly in order for the next stages of the virus life cycle to take place. Late in the uh, HIV life cycle, the capsid proteins reassemble and then they mature themselves into the capsid core's final conical shape. And so what capsid inhibitors do is they bind to distinct sites on the capsid sum units and prevent disassembly and reassembly. And that's how they're thought to um, have their antiviral effects. The capsid inhibitor that's furthest along is lenacapavir. It's an investigational drug. Importantly, and this is um, worth um, focusing on, There's no anticipated cross-resistance between lenacapivir and other classes of antiretroviral medications. There's no uh, cross-resistance anticipated with HIV protease inhibitors, RT inhibitors, or integrase inhibitors. Lenacapivir has an oral formulation with a half-life of close to two weeks, and it has a subcutaneous formulation when given by subcutaneous injection, the half-life is uh, amenable to every six-month dosing. So at this particular meeting, we saw the results of a phase, of a of an early stage clinical trial of called Capella. This looked at lenacapavir in people with HIV who had multidrug resistant virus. There was a randomized cohort and a non randomized cohort. Um, the non randomized cohort was open label. We'll show you some combined results in a moment. The way this was designed is participants started with the oral lenacapavir. They looked to see what the antiviral effect was as compared to placebo and then participants went over to subcutaneous lenacapavir and an optimized background regimen. That is they brought in drugs um, uh, to which the virus was susceptible. Who was in the study? They had to have resistance to two or more agents, uh, but they did have to have some fully active agents to be paired with um, alongside lenacapavir. So in that first um, initial stage of functional monotherapy, that's when they assessed the antiviral effect that was during that first 14 days or so. And what you can see is that lenacapavir, as compared to placebo had a greater a reduction in viral load. I think the, the graph to look at is the one on the right. And you can see a much greater reduction in viral load with the lenacapavir dosing than with the placebo dosing. That's not surprising. Um, one wouldn't anticipate any resistance to lenacapavir for the reasons I mentioned. And so they showed an antiviral effect of the drug. We then carried on and saw what happened over time, and over the course of about 20 or 22 weeks, they saw that uh, over 75% or so of participants achieved a viral load that was less than 50, and so that spoke to the effect of lenacapavir with an optimized background regimen in terms of being able to suppress virologic suppression. What else did we learn from this uh, uh, trial? Two participants did develop emergent capsid mutations, they're listed there. Um, the capsid mutations were at position 66 and at 74. Those mutations do confer high level high level lenocapivir resistance, but there was an intriguing um, companion study that suggested that those mutations might substantially affect replication capacity of the virus. They may substantially decrease replication capacity of the virus. In those two participants, both of them re their viral load one, Instance they resuppressed without a change in regimen, and another uh, they re- resuppressed with a change in regimen. What about side effects? There were injection site reactions. This is subcutaneously administered, in about um, a little over 45%. Uh, pain, erythema were somewhat short lived. Nodules persisted um, in about 20%, uh, but they were quite mild. They were grade one, and so this is something to keep your eye on in terms of uh, lenacapavir and where it's going to go. And we'll come back to this in a moment in terms of a potential partner. There were also data, and there are uh, rapidly evolving data on HIV broadly neutralizing antibodies. This is a a graphic um, shared um, uh, with me by uh, Dr. Lucio Gama. And this shows you a a variety of these different broadly neutralizing antibodies that target different parts of the HIV um, envelope. And you can see the different um, antibodies and and the ones that are in clinical trials are, are listed in this particular slide. Now why are broadly neutralizing antibodies raising interest? The interest here is that you can engineer an antibody to be very, very long lasting. lasting, And that might really uh, allow one to give intermittent therapy uh, in a way that oral therapy is is harder to do. Um, The other potential prospect with broadly neutralizing antibodies for treatment now is that they may be amenable to vector delivery. So now at last year's CROI, An interesting concept of delivering the gene for an antibody through a viral vector was presented. um, And what they showed last year is that antibodies could be expressed from this viral vector for um, close to a year or in one instance, over a year. Now, one of the challenges with this vectored approach is the development of um, uh, antibodies against the vector. And that's something that still needs to be um, uh, sorted out over time. But it at least gives proof of principle that this can be done. Um, There are also interesting um, combinations coming down the pipe where a BNAB will be combined with a long-acting small molecule. So I'll give you just two examples of that. The AIDS Clinical Trials Group is doing a study where an antibody, VRCO7, is going to be combined with long-acting cabotegravir to see if people with HIV can be suppressed on this this combination. And there's also a prospect of combining two different uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies listed here, uh, 3BNC117, 101074, combining these long-lasting versions of these broadly loose, uh, neutralizing antibodies alongside lenacapavir, and a trial is being planned uh, of that combination of antibodies with a capsid inhibitor. The last um, new drug I'll cover is a maturation inhibitor. Uh, it goes by the very long name of uh, shown here, but people abbreviate it GSK254. What is a maturation inhibitor? A maturation inhibitor inhibits the last protease cleavage event. It's it's between capsid and GAG. And what happens with a maturation inhibitor is the virus is left immature and non-infectious. So it acts late in the virus life cycle and it blocks um, maturation uh, of the virus. At this year's CROI, um, we heard the results of a phase 2 a study. Uh, this is done in treatment naive people. It had two parts. In one part, people got functional uh, monotherapy with different doses of this of GSK254 uh, for 10 days. Now what happened there is some of the people with 10 days of monotherapy did develop resistance. There was also a part two where people were, um, the lead in was with seven days of, of GSK254. And there what you see in the bottom right is uh, a, a decline in viral load with different doses of the of the maturation inhibitor and no resistance emerged. So where are we with this maturation inhibitor? There's an ongoing phase two b study of GSK254 in combination now with two nucleoside RT inhibitors in treatment-naive adults. And I think that, if it moves forward, really would represent an entirely new class of antiretroviral therapy. So with this in hand, let's talk a little bit about how we might use new drugs as they are developed. And I think it's it's profitable or it's useful to reflect on some lessons from other fields where other fields have used long-acting formulations in in different uh, settings. So we'll start with long-acting reversible contraceptives. Uh, Long-acting reversible contraceptives include things like IUDs and implants. These can stay in for years, um, um, kind of a get it and forget it in terms of its approach. Uh, So that's one model. There's also um, medroxyprogesterone acetate injections which last for three months. When, uh, when uh, our colleagues um, have looked at um, these long acting reversible contraceptives in general, they found a lower failure rate than shorter acting contraceptives. The lessons for our field of ART, I think choice matters. Uh, giving people uh, a variety of different choices, I think is, is critical and uh, intriguing ideas. Could injectable contraceptives and long acting ART actually be combined and delivered together? Bisphosphonates for osteoporosis is another example of um, of long-acting therapy. We know that there are yearly injectable bisphosphonates. There are also monthly, weekly, and daily um, bisphosphonates. Studies have shown that adherence and persistence, the ability to stay on bisphosphonates seems to be best with the yearly injectables, uh, better than weekly and better than oral, uh, better than daily. Um, what it means to me as an HIV clinician is I think when it comes to dosing interval, uh, the longer the better. But then again, uh, there's um, real utility to choices. Long-acting injectable psychiatric medications have the ability to be given every three months. There are studies showing decreased discontinuation rates, lower hospitalization rates. But when I talk to my psychiatrist colleagues, they say that these are often underutilized in part because of cost, and in part because they have to be given in clinics. And so a lesson for ART is that we have to pay attention to how do we facilitate delivery. And then last but not least, our PCSK9 inhibitors, these are used for cardiovascular disease prevention. These can be given every two or four weeks. They're self-administered. If you've seen these with your patients, they're like a little pen that people can give um, an injection to themselves. These have been somewhat limited in uptake in part because of cost. So the lessons for our field, I think self-administration clearly is desirable and drugs need to be priced competitively so cost does not end up being a barrier. So how do our long-acting drugs stack up in terms of how they might be used? We've already heard about cabotegravir, uh, as Lactrovir and lenacapavir, which we've covered um, in this session, one of the real issues with those is um, what are their partners? Um, how do they get partnered with another long-acting agent? Because they've often been studied to date with oral agents, which are given less frequently. Now, just recently, around the time of CROI, uh, the companies that make Um, lenacapavir and islatravir, announced the partnership where they will develop and and, um, commercialize long-acting combinations of lenacapavir and islatravir, and I think that could be a positive step forward in terms of combining these long-acting drugs. Who will we treat with long-acting ART? I think for most of my patients, oral daily ART is going to be um, effective and going to remain their most convenient option I think it will be long acting therapy will be a good option for patients who struggle with daily oral regimens, those who have swallowing difficulties, those who aren't taking oral medicines after surgery, those who, because of either external or internal stigma, find a long acting uh, drug more um, amenable, or for someone who just doesn't want to take a medicine uh, every single day. I think it'd be interesting to see if we can combine long acting um, uh, injections at visits with other appointments. For example, when picking up a methadone refill, uh, when someone is seeing a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or a support group or at health centers. But the considerations, of course, are things like the long PK tail, the need for oral bridging if there's a missed injection. Of course, that's being discussed with cabotegravir/rilpivirine. The need for reminders, logistics, and how do we manage toxicities if they develop? What if a recipient becomes pregnant? And what to do if a person requires a medicine that interacts with long-acting ART? I think we will learn uh, about these challenges with cabotegravir/rilpivirine. And then I think apply what we learned to to newer uh, and and future uh, long acting regimens. So now let's pivot in the, in the last few minutes to how we might use the new drugs in people with MDR HIV. Um, the example I started with at the outset of this talk is a person who has resistance to all available classes. You see his his uh, phenotype here, and really all the classes of currently used regimens um, he's resistant to. I think a number of drugs potentially will have a role for a patient like this. We now have the FDA approval of Ibilizumab and a Fustemzivir entry inhibitors, um, attachment inhibitors. Um, I think some of the drugs we've talked about during this session possibly could have a role for mdr HIV. We just need time to to determine uh, what that role uh, might be. We've talked about some of these and there's other ones that um, are also coming down the pike uh, uh, in this space. What about cost? Um, We know that novel agents um, may not be cost-effective if the price is too high. There's an example actually of ebilizumab. interesting analysis done by one of my colleagues uh, found that even though this is um, a very expensive drug, because of the small number of people who need ebilizumab, the effect on overall care costs is likely to be limited. Um, They estimated about a percent or a percent and a half over five years. And an interesting concept is is it justifiable to spend more on individuals whose life is in peril, that is in someone who has multidrug resistant HIV? This is sometimes called the role of rescue. But I think the fundamental point here is that new drugs, especially those designed for initial therapy, need to be priced lower to ensure access, access to the largest number of people in the US, access to the largest number number of people around the world. And by twenty thirty, which is not long from now, up to million people may need second-line therapy in Africa, and some of them will need these novel drugs that we've been talking about during this session. So let me pull this all together. For my patient who started off, who's doing well on ART, but who wants to take fewer medicines, I think the new regimens will have a role if they have fewer drugs, if they're less toxic, they're more convenient, and they offer greater flexibility. And some of the drugs we've talked about um, have that promise. What about for my patient who has intermittent viral suppression because he's struggling with daily oral ART? We've talked about a number of drugs that have a long-acting formulation that at least open up the potential to improve adherence, but we do need systems to facilitate their delivery and to ensure follow-up. And my patient who has multi-drug-resistant HIV with virus resistant to all available classes, I think these novel drugs and new classes does promise, do promise hope. So in my last slide before my acknowledgements, what is the future of ART? I think why we need new drugs is we need to overcome the limitations of our current therapies with less toxic, fewer drugs, less frequent dosing, and activity against resistant HIV. We've talked about some of the new drugs in development, those that target novel mechanisms such as translocation, capsid, maturation. We've talked about long-acting agents and we've talked, and there are some innovative delivery systems that will come down the pike we hope in the future. And then how we'll use the new drugs really depends on the person in front of us and their needs, but for all the people with HIV, we must redouble our efforts to provide more options, including during pregnancy, reduce the costs, and ensure access in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, so with that, I think I am right at the 2.45 hour. I will thank a number of people, many of whom um, helped with slides, many of whom helped with um, uh, uh, discussion, and I want to thank you all for your attention, and back over to you, uh, Dr. Avery.
0: Well, thanks. That was wonderful uh, as always. And we've already uh, started to get some questions um, in the Q&A. So um, this first question, I'll uh, I suppose anyone could answer, but perhaps you could address whether there are any new info or recommendations for those who seem to have persistently low-level viremia.
1: Yeah. That, I, think that's I touched
0: it. on that a little bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a very common clinical question. I'm glad, glad you asked. I think we all have patients who, who have persistent low-level viremia. I, I usually define that as somewhere between 50 to 200. Usually they're they're not below the limits of detection, but they're also below the, the threshold that we usually use when we're thinking about changing regimens. You know, what I do clinically is I, I tick through what the p- potential causes are. I, I make sure there's not a drug-drug interaction that might be compri- um, compromising, you know, absorption. So are they taking an integrase inhibitor, but also taking calcium at the same time, or are they taking iron um, at the same time? Any multivalent cation will interfere with the absorption of an integrase inhibitor. I go again and reflect on um, what their adherence is. Um, Are they are they missing doses? And could that be the reason? But when I go through that, if at the end of the day, I find no um, drug-drug interactions, I find no evidence, you know, uh, really no concern around non-adherence, then I'm usually reassured and there is a study that was published in um, 2020 by John Mellers and his group that looked at this idea of so-called non-suppressible viremia. People whose viral load just sticks between 50 to 200 year after year after year. And what he showed interestingly is that may be due to um, kind of uh, clones of virus that come out from the reservoir but aren't really replicating. That was the lesson of his, of his study is that this very, very low level viremia in many instances, is just um virus that comes out from the reservoir without a full cycle of replication. And he showed that looking at the fact that the integration sites for the virus were really not changing, the virus was not evolving. Uh, and so what that has told me is that for some of my patients, I think it's safe to just continue their current regimen, keep uh, an eye out on adherence, keep an eye out on, um, on uh Drug, drug interactions, but I don't intensify them. I don't add drugs, and I typically don't change their drugs unless there's some reason for convenience. So, this is a real entity. I think it reflects reservoir virus, and, and that's been my uh, thinking about it.
0: Super. So, we have another question. Um, since the high frequency of visits cannot really be medically justified for well controlled HIV infection, Clinic visits for injection could deploy resources. So, really, the error of every three month visit is great to maintain relationships, but can we justify it medically?
1: Um, let me make sure I understand the question. Is it having to do with is it still needed to see our patients every three months, um, or are we in an area that we can space out the visits? Is that. I think that. Um,
0: the point is that we are in an era where we've spaced out the visits, and perhaps going to long acting, more frequent visits with long acting injectables might be hard to justify or setting us backwards. That's
1: yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you. That's actually true, and I, I think um, we are just in the beginning of our own deployment of long acting cabotegravir range. We started our very first patient in our clinic was someone with short gut syndrome. Um, so there was, um, reasons why daily oral therapy were, was, was problematic. Um, but now we're exploring, you know, how best to um, use it. And I think it's true. I don't think most people, um, will switch over, but I know most people will just coming down to my clinic in downtown Boston is not something that people want to do once a month and maybe even not even, even uh, every two months. But I think there will be some patients in whom, um, that kind of option does um, maintain them and, and allow them to continue on IRT, but I don't think it will be the, the majority of people. And the point about resources is, is a very good one. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I don't know if there's other people on the panel who'd like to comment, but that's been my. I, I think um, we're all exploring this space right now in terms of who the right person is for long acting therapy. Be- okay. And
0: I, I think Sue made the point. This is the first generation of these right. agents. And I think we expect to see you know, better dosing intervals in the, in the future with other agents. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, another participant uh, notes, he said, I know CXCR4 inhibitors are being developed in oncology. Yeah. Well, they are too toxic, but could they have a role in MDR-HIV treatment?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because we know that most people, by the time they get MDR uh, HIV, especially if they've had low CD4 counts along the way, and, and many of them have, almost always their virus has shifted over from R5 tropic virus where we have maraviroc to use to CXCR4 utilizing virus, and, and maraviroc doesn't have activity. I, I think the issue is what you said, though, is, is the uh, balance of risk benefit, and um, and for oncology, I think um, because of the nature of the diseases, I think. That those are moving forward, but I know less uh, about their role in HIV. I think the focus has been on these uh, other um, attachment inhibitors and BNABS and other ways of inhibiting viral entry that are not using the, the chemokine. So I didn't um, have time to go through all of the different mechanisms, but there's different ways to block entry. And um, one is the chemokine receptor, but then there's also CD4 binding and, and that those um, kind of mechanisms are being explored.
0: And I I think this is a little bit of meet meet the expert. Um, Someone is asking whether any new data on immune recovery for patients who are virologically suppressed but with low CD4 counts.
1: Um, People who are virologically suppressed with low CD4 counts, say below 200, tend not to get um, opportunistic infections or even opportunistic cancers in general. So we have derived a greater comfort with stopping, um, you know, OI prophylaxis in those patients, as we've, as we've noted, that OIs are, are quite rare in those those individuals as long as they viral is suppressed. What I worry about is there is good evidence that people who have poor CD4 camp recovery tend to have higher levels of inflammation and probably have higher uh, levels or higher frequencies of some of the non-communicable diseases, things like um, cardiovascular disease, things like neurocognitive disease. So I think there is an unmet need there. But I don't think it's uh, on the infection uh, end of things. And I certainly don't think the changing antiretrovirals um, helps in those um, in those settings. So. Okay.
0: And how about new information on, or recommendations for new agents, um, folks with uh, chronic kidney disease?
1: Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, so what we have learned over the last couple of years is there's a couple of uh, possibilities there. Um for people on dialysis, there's been some uh, data showing that combinations of our fixed-dose combinations, for example, um, TAP-FTC or Cobra-Sys, that boosted l that can be given um, in people who are on dialysis. Um, even more recent data on um, on TAP-FTC, big-tegravir, small numbers of participants uh, to date. DALG-tegravir-3-TC is another option um, in some instances when people um, are, um, you know, um, have chronic kidney disease. So there's, there's more options certainly than, than there have been in the past. So, um, I usually choose from some of those options.
0: So, so I, I have a, a question. You, you covered a number of new agents and, and in where we, we are seeing new data and new studies. And there's a parallel conversation going on about trying to accelerate study of drugs in pregnancy. Um, and how we're always sort of years later doing that. Are there any drugs or drug classes that you're particularly excited about where you think there's likely to be widespread use? And we might be thinking about targeting earlier studies in, in pregnant.
1: pregnant. Well, one example of that, and I would love for you to, to also comment on this given given your uh, perspectives, but is lactavir is an example of a drug that's going to be studied for treatment, but also studied for PrEP. And so we need to know, um, whether, um, because it's going to be studied appropriately and as it must be in, in, um, uh, cisgender women and, and people who are sexually active. And so we need to know safety ab- about eslatribe during PrEP and, and certainly therefore also for treatment. And the same is true for lenocapivir. I didn't talk too much about PrEP today, but Lenacapivir is also being uh, looked at for, for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I think we must continue to follow, um, uh, People who become pregnant um, during um, their participation in clinical trials, and I think it's critical. I, I would maybe turn that back to you and have you give us your perspective on it, because I would value that.
0: Yeah, actually, those are the top of my list as well. Also, because not just for treatment, but, but young women of reproductive you know, age are targeted for, for prevention. So absolutely critical. Um, we've run out of time. There are a couple more questions, so perhaps you'll be able to answer them um, on the on the chat on the Q and A. And I'm now going to turn um, to introduce our next speaker.